We look at your what your spirit is calling us to see. And Lord, I pray that you would open us up to the truth here, and Lord, that we would embrace it with all of our heart. Lord, I pray we would walk by faith. I pray, Lord, as we continue to look at this family album, I pray, God, we would see that your spirit enables us to walk by faith and to trust and depend on your character, on your promises, and on your power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This morning, the title of the message is Better Blessings So We Can Endure. Better Blessings So We Can Endure. I think that one mistake, if you've been around church in your life as a Christian, if this is not something new to you. One big mistake you've probably made with Hebrews chapter 11 is that you've looked at it in isolation from the book of Hebrews. And if you don't understand the overall context of the book of Hebrews, like we've been looking at for months, you can't understand the call that he's giving these precious Christians to endure, the call that he's giving these precious Christians to persevere. And so this is built on the supremacy of Jesus, the supremacy of his priesthood, the supremacy of Christ, fully God, fully man, one in nature and substance with the Father. All the way through the book, he's building this case, and then he takes them all the way back to their ancestors. And he walks them through. And we get to the end of chapter 11, and let's pick up in verse 32. He picks the pace up, so we're going to pick the pace up. He says in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect." What we're going to do this morning is try to trace like four movements through this text. When I looked at it, I think it really breaks down, at least in my mind, in, in, in four key ways. And you could divide this up and you could outline it differently than I'm going to do. But I think the way we're going to look at it at least gives it a flow of, of different things that he's bringing out here. 
four key movements. What we're going to see is, and then we're going we're gonna to end with some takeaways, but we're going to see the people, the triumphs, the sufferings, and the encouragement. The people, the triumphs, the sufferings, and the encouragement. And so we start out, and, and, he, and he's like now coming to the end of the list. And, and I, I think one thing that we have learned throughout our study, and we've almost felt like we had a mini-series on Genesis and Exodus, is that we've been learning that these are imperfect people. I think sometimes that hopefully reminds us of the essence of the gospel, that the gospel is not for strong people who figure it out. It's for weak people who are saved by the grace of God to the glory of God. That's the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel, as we've been learning even in our discipleship course, is the fact that God takes people not just who are struggling, but people who are dead spiritually and awakens them to the glory of God. And so when you look at anybody in the Bible that is a testimony of something good, you can be assured that it is by the grace of God. And isn't that the way it works in our life? And these are imperfect people. The list that he picks up on this morning, we get into Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and then we move to David and Samuel. I mean, Samuel is a, a great example of integrity and faith. Samuel was a godly man. And, but but we, we, as we go through the narratives that picture David, that picture Jephthah and the horrible vow that he made in Judges 11 at the end of the chapter, and we get into Samson, Barak, and Gideon, I, I hope what you find and what you're thinking of is that these were imperfect people, and we have to remember that we often show more grace to ourselves than we do others. Have you ever noticed that? I have an, just an amazing amount of grace that I show myself. But I find myself sometimes being very uh, pharisaical in the way that I will judge you or in the way I'll judge somebody else in ways that I wouldn't judge myself. And sometimes I think we do that when we look at the biblical characters. We're like, are you kidding me? They did what? And, and, and then we don't even remember or we're not even keen to the reality of our own hearts. And it goes right back to the whole blessed are the poor in spirit, doesn't it? Because I think once we realize that, we go, wow, look how deceived we can be. Because I can find the things in you, but I so often don't see those very things in me. And, and we see these, these, these people, and we're encouraged, I pray, by the gospel of grace. And we see that even in great weakness, God worked through these people. And I pray it would encourage you. You know, one mistake that we often make is to presume that our sin is so great that God's grace could never penetrate our lives. And it really is a strange way of pride. It's almost like we're too messed up for God to help me. Well, no, actually, praise be to God. God is glorified by saving sinners. And God is glorified by reaching into situations that are really messed up so he can be glorified. So be encouraged by that because if you see yourself as a sinner, you're in good company, you know? There's even ground at the foot of the cross, and it goes all the way back to the very beginning to the ancestors of these Jewish Christians who were looking back at their own story. And, and also be reminded that God in your weakness can be glorified and can give you strength. So we jump in, and he gives Gideon 
Gideon, I always think of Gideon, and I guess as a kid, I always would forget, and it was back when uh, Gilligan's Island was on when I was a kid, and so I always think of Gilligan when I think of Gideon, and, and it's sort of a fitting picture, you know, and, and it's comforting to me, because Gideon, as we mentioned, as I mentioned to you just a couple of weeks ago, he was hiding in a wine press when God called out to him, and, and what did he do? He used this man who was prone to fear. He used this man that tested the Lord and used fleeces to, to gain God's will and direction. And what did he do with Gideon? He took Gideon and he used him to crush the Midianites. And you remember, I can't go into great detail because we're covering a lot of ground this morning, but there was 32,000 people in his army and God reduced 32,000 down to what? 300. I, I agree with one preacher I was listening to, and I think I mentioned this to you when we were going through the book of Judges. I really don't think it was because the 300 men were like Rambo and they were drinking their water, watching out for people. That would mess up the whole story. The whole point of reducing 32,000 to 300 was not to show the super warriors of the 300. It was to show the wisdom of God, the power of God. I think it's, it, it, at that moment, I don't think Gideon was like, oh boy, I've got 300 wonderful warriors. He was like, oh no, I've got 300 guys. 300, but what did God do? God in his sovereignty and in his power, he called Gideon to recognize that it wasn't about Gideon, that Gideon had to trust God. And, and what did they have? They, they were equipped with torches. I was, I was looking at the pillar commentary and so much of this background info so I would recommend that to you if you want to go back and, and read uh, some of these storylines. Equipped with torches and clay jars and trumpets, he and his tiny force threw the vastly superior numbers of Midianites into confusion. We get into that wonderful scene of, of how God just worked. Gideon's another example of faith. We get into Barak, and Barak was the military commander of the Israelite, Israelite army who refused to take the field against Sisera and a Confederate Canaanite army unless supported by the presence of Deborah. B Barak was not the judge. Deborah was the judge. And Deborah called him to go to Mount Tabor. And, and there uh, he ended up being used by God. And you remember the, the commander of the Canaanite army was uh, a, a man by the name of Sisera. And, and what happened? It was... Uh, it was the Jael and the tent peg with the hammer who basically killed Sisera. And it was the picture what? Barak didn't get the glory. Barak was simply a vessel. He was a vessel. That, that's all he was, and that's all we are. You know, the only time we're not vessels is when we lose sight of who we are in the eyes of a holy God. And we begin to presumptuously think that we're something and that God needs us on his team and that we're going to do it. And isn't it interesting that every time we do that, things get messed up in great ways. We, we, we end up becoming proud and arrogant. We end up doing things that look to be godly in very fleshly ways. And yet what we learn from these individuals all throughout, it's not to put, yes, they are heroes of faith, but they're heroes only because God's grace and God's glory sovereignly use them. But they're just people. They're just vessels. Again, you know, this morning you may be thinking, I can't, I can't be useful in the kingdom of God. You may be thinking, I can't speak and I can't lead. Well, I've got good news for you. You're in a great place if you keep going with that because God doesn't like to share his glory. And God loves to use empty vessels. 
who are recognizing the reality that it's, it's not of their strength, it's of God's purpose. We, we see Samson. Another interesting thought about Samson, he very likely wasn't the Rambo figure that we imagine him to be. He very likely didn't look that strong because God was the one who gave him his strength. That, you know, you often think of him bigger than, you know, any WWF guy walking around, but, but it was the Lord's power through Samson. God was the one who gave him strength. We don't know for certain what he looked like, but it's interesting. Sometimes the way we imagine these people, it actually deters from the idea of God being glorified in his power in them. But what did Samson do? We know a lot of the things he did. Samson had a weakness with women, and Samson made a lot of mistakes. He sinned greatly against God. But we see yet another example of a man who in his weakness and in his failure looked back by the grace of God to the Lord. And in looking to the Lord, we see victory as God worked powerfully through his servant. We, we, we go to Jephthah. Jephthah is a classic example of what not to do in that horrific story of the vow that he made to God with his child. Yet what we see is, is that even in all of that failure, we see that God used Jephthah for his purpose. We see that Jephthah, as messed up as he was, was a man that trusted God at times in his life, and God worked powerfully through Jephthah for his purpose and his glory. So he takes four individuals from the time of the judges, and then he moves to King David. And we could spend hours on King David. David is a great example of a man after God's own heart, but again, a man that was an adulterer, a man that was a murderer, and yet God worked through David. We see Samuel. Samuel stood not only in the face of the enemy when he had to deal with the Philistines, at Mizpah, but, but he was a man that had to stand in the face of his own people and lead them according to godly wisdom as he trusted God. And then he says a phrase, and the prophets. And, and through this, we're going to see some of the prophets, I think, that are clearly mentioned. Samuel was actually a judge and a prophet. He was the last of the judges and one of the earliest of the prophets, so he had a dual role. But when we think about some of the prophets, we're thinking about guys like Hosea, Amos, Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, uh, Nahum, uh, J- you know, Jonah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, you know, you go on and on, Malachi, Haggai, all kinds of men that God used and, and, and how many ways that the Lord was working through his people and was glorified by their faith. And so we we keep going and we move from the people and we begin to look at the triumphs. And what you're gonna see is you're gonna look at this list and if you're not careful, you're not gonna see this huge distinction within the flow of this list. Up to around verse 35, we see nothing but triumph. We see the stories that really make us amazed But then we get into around verse 35 and we get into stories of suffering and we get into stories of perseverance. It's interesting because so many times um, when you hear people talk about faith on TV, it's never in relationship to suffering. It's always in relationship to triumph. 
But we have to be careful. We have to make sure we have a theology as Christians that yes, God by his grace works through us in ways that appear to be triumphant, in ways of victory that are noticeable, that we can put our hands on and are tangible in these ways. But he also gets victory through the persevering, suffering Christian who's going through the throes of life. And in the midst of all of that, we see two sides of the coin here. We start with the triumphs, though. And notice how he clarifies this list. He starts out and he says, who through faith conquered kingdoms. We saw some examples of that. Gideon, Barak, Samuel, uh, you know, immediately jump out. Again, just looking at different commentaries about some of the history here, it's fascinating because there's so many people used by God to conquer kingdoms throughout Old Testament history. And, and, and these individuals, God worked in not as a result of the power of the nation, but of God's power working through vessels that were walking by faith, that were trusting him. Then you see who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice. Samuel judged Israel with integrity. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, you see that. Verses three through five, you see that any time during the period of the judges where there was integrity, it was by the grace of God. It was, it was leaders, you know, that whole cycle was going on in the book of Judges. It was like a sin, slavery, supplication, then there'd be salvation, then there'd be silence, and then there'd be sin, then there'd be slavery. It just kept going. They could never learn their lesson. And so they would go through a period of slavery. They'd cry out to God. God would raise up a judge, and then they would get sort of like, this is great, we've got peace, we don't need God anymore. And what would they do? They'd go right back and repeat the same idolatrous ways that they had done before. But in those moments where God was glorified and honored, it was by faith that they led and that they enforced justice. It's really interesting. I was talking to uh, a couple of guys just over the last couple of days. Me, Tim, and Kenny were talking about this, about isn't it interesting? In, in a world that is talking so much about justice, remember something, it's really hard to understand justice void of the scripture, which is what our social climate is seeking to do, that's a hard thing to deal with. Number two, it's very hard to, to bring about justice without faith. Justice is according to God's word, according to God's righteousness, according to God's standard, and justice can only be understood and seen through people as they walk by faith, and the God of all justice gives them wisdom and discernment in being a vessel of that justice. So, so often, we can be going after the right goal, but boy, we go after it with the wrong means, with man-made strength and man-made wisdom, and we end up a lot worse off than when we started. But these people were examples of the triumphs of faith. They experienced justice that God brought about. They obtained promises. You know, so many of the promises that we've been reading about in Hebrews are future. They're future promises. And we've been talking about how that's the essence of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance and the evidence and all of these things that we've been looking at about trusting in the future promises of God and those present those future spiritual realities being brought into the present, us to live out of confidence in what God will do in the future. But there were promises that they did experience 
fulfilled in their life. And you remember so many of those promises involving the land, involving the promised land they walked in, they experienced in, in their day, in their time. And, and God brought that about in his purposes by faith. They stopped the mouths of lions. What, what a, I think immediately we think of Daniel in the lion's den. And we think about his faithfulness. And we think about how when they, I, this verse is really interesting. And it just gives you a sense of uh, the predicament Daniel was in. But in Daniel 6.24, and the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. I read that to you only because it just shows you the miraculous nature of how God worked protecting Daniel when he was in the pit. When he was in the pit, those lions were just there with him and they were calm. Why? God worked through Daniel and God empowered him. God took over a situation that was completely humanly impossible to explain or figure out and God protected him. He shut their mouths. And then he goes on and you can really see how the author is staying close to the story of Daniel. He says, quench the power of fire. And we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We think of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, depending on how you go after the, their names, depending on where you're looking at it from. But what happened with those guys? They stood in the fire and what they had the even if type of faith, didn't they? where they basically said, even if God chooses to do something different, he's good, he's holy, he's sovereign. And what happened? They saw God work and he keeps going. Faith escaped the edge of the sword. You see that with David and Saul. You see that when Elijah escaped from Jezebel, Elisha from Jehoram, Jeremiah from Jehoiakim, and, and God rescued his people. And the Old Testament is filled with stories. If we look at the Old Testament void of this reality, we're going to mess it up royally because it's going to be all about the power of men. It's going to be about elevating the heroes of the people. And, and it's, we're going to fail to see that, no, God used these people and God worked through them. They were vessels and God was glorified in his power he keeps going here, and now he gets into another group of three. There's, there's all these groups of three as you walk through, and it's fascinating because uh, the first three describe these positive accomplishments. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. Then you have these astonishing escapes. Stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword. And then this final group of three, you see this, this power to overcome. God gave them power to overcome through faith. They were made strong out of weakness. They were made strong out of weakness. I ought to encourage you this morning because I don't know about you, but some of you are here today and you're amazed at how weak you are right now spiritually. You're amazed at how weak you are. And, and I want to encourage you because the Bible is filled with faith examples of how God gives strength in the midst of people's weakness as they look to him by faith. He gives them strength that they didn't have. And, and you see that with so many different places through the scripture. 
And I was thinking about some passages here, even in the New Testament, where Paul brings up this idea, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not, let's see, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And you remember what the author of Hebrews says to this audience, he tells them something, and, and this is important, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our what? Weaknesses. We have many weaknesses. But what do we learn through the passage of Hebrews eleven thirty two through 40? We learn that not only through faith did they escape the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, and then it says they became mighty in war. We see that so many of the stories we've already, I've already alluded to in the book of Judges. And then you see put foreign armies to flight. Then in verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. And the women that we feel positive that he's speaking about is we're thinking of Elisha, and the Shunammite woman, and we think about the other story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, where these women experienced the resurrection of the dead with their children. And we see that by faith this took place. On and on and on and on and on. Women receive back their dead by resurrection, and then he makes the transition. We go from these triumphs till we go to these sufferings. Look at how it transitions. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. See, you walk by faith, you're not guaranteed to come out in the light that you might envision. <laughs> you're not guaranteed to have the success story in the human mind. But there's always a success story through the plan and the glory of God. You can have two different people walking by faith and one can be saved from the edge of the sword and the other one can perish. And we see that in this storyline here of how he's laying this out, he not only goes from the people to the triumphs, but now we see the sufferings. In the first one, some were tortured. We see people that were tortured throughout. It's interesting because a lot of people believe that He's not only referring to biblical history here, but he's referring to some Jewish history from the Maccabean period of time, which would have been what we call the intertestamental period. And some people think he's doing that. Even Calvin believes that his th thoughts here are speaking about some of the situations that happened in Jewish history with the man named Eleazar and how they were tortured and how these people were were called to compromise. We don't know that for sure because we know that there are many stories in biblical history where there were people that were tortured. Whatever the point, whatever his case, he's showing that in history, those that looked to God by faith often endured and persevered through torture. They refused to accept release. They wouldn't compromise. 
Calvin speaks about Jewish history here. He says, now, through they, now though they say that Jeremiah was stoned, that Isaiah was sawn asunder, and though sacred history relates that Elijah, Elisha, and other prophets wandered on mountains and in caves, yet I doubt not, but he here points out those persecutions which Antiochus carried on against God's people and those which afterwards followed. So there's this period of time where we see this intertestamental period, it appears that the author alludes to. All through the New Testament, we see sometimes where the author will point to something that is outside of the scripture, but is some point that is a, a contact point for the audience where they would understand what he was speaking of. But what is he speaking of? So that they might rise again to a better life. He speaks of by faith, even those that didn't experience what Elisha and Elijah and those women experienced, they were confident that it was better not to compromise because God would bring about a deliverance on the other end, that there would be a resurrection of the dead. There would be a resurrection to a better life in the future. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And there's so many different stories you could go to. Jeremiah the prophet went through great suffering. And you can read in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, how he was put in the stocks. And you can read how in 2 Chronicles, he experienced great suffering. On and on and on and on and on, you see these. And every one of these, they were stoned, verse 37 speaks. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. History you know, not in the scripture, but history points to the fact that Isaiah was sawn in two. Isaiah the prophet, and that's what most people think he's speaking of when he says they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. We, we see other prophets, Elijah escaped Jezebel, but prophets of the Lord were put to death. And so on and on and on through this section, verse 35 through verse 38, he goes on, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Elijah and Elisha are great examples of being in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. But what's his point? Of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Wow, you look at that and you think, wait a minute, we got to make sure that we remember not only the triumphs, but remember the sufferings through faith. If we don't, we're really going to be set up for failure when we go through suffering. And I think that's one of the biggest, one of the big problems in evangelicalism is that a lot of churches don't want to talk about suffering. They want to talk about achievements. They want to talk about what faith will accomplish for you. They want to talk about what faith is going to bring you. But what are you going to do when you hit a dead end, so to speak? What are you going to do when you hit a crisis? You need to see perspective through the plan of God that God has not abandoned you. But by faith, God is calling you to endure the suffering. I love this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. I pray it encourages you. It says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then he goes on down in that passage and it says, he committed no sin, 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. And look at this next verse. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but did what? Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Through the eyes of faith, these individuals, they trusted God. They were going through great pain and suffering. Many of them died and were tortured. And what they did is that they brought Hebrews 11.1 1 into the present because they held on to future promises and future realities. And those future realities gave them strength through the grace of Christ in the moment, in the present they were able to live and follow after God. In 1 Peter 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All of this, there was triumphs, there was suffering. So we see the people, we see the triumphs, we see the suffering, but you may not be expecting this, but I think he brings out some encouragement here. And we get to verse 39, and, and, and notice what he does in Hebrews 11, 39, and 40. He does something really interesting, and, and we got to slow down for a second and make sure we see what he's doing. In verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You notice how he distinguishes the these of verse 39 with the us of verse 40. We've got to see that. This is, this is really important. What is he speaking of here? What is happening here? I was reading one commentator, and, and this is interesting. He said it like this. God has provided this something better for us. That is for those under the new covenant, which is why apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That is not until our time, the time of Christianity, could their salvation, the saints of the Old Testament, be completed, made perfect until Jesus' atoning work on the cross was accomplished. No salvation was complete, no matter how great the faith a believer may have had. Their salvation was based on what Christ would do. Ours is based on what Christ has done. Their faith looked forward to the promise. Ours looks back to historical fact. Now, why would he bring this up? Why would he bring this up to a group of people that were tempting to go back to Judaism? Why would he like bring out all these stories and now at the very end say, hey, wait a minute, there's something you gotta be aware of. You gotta make sure you see this, this important point because this is actually gonna be a God-given way of encouragement for your soul when you're tempted to quit. I was looking at, some passages that, listen to this one. Gary read one, I'm gonna reread it to you, but look at Luke 10. 
Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I want you to think about something. Do you realize that Gideon, Barak, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, we could go through the prophets of the Old Testament. They desired to see what we have seen. Does that make sense? They would long, now, now go one more passage with me. First Peter chapter one, concerning the salvation. We read this earlier, Gary read it. I want you to focus on this. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I was looking at this and there's a pastor that I like listening to out of Nevada named Brian Borgman. And, and here's how he put it. He said, our position is better. Our faith position is better because we did not have to await the fullness of our redemption and anticipation. It was not something that we saw through types and shadows with fuzzy edges, but rather it is something that comes to us in the clarity and the boldness of the gospel itself. Old Testament saints were saved as it were on credit. God did indeed credit to their, their account the work of Christ. But what did they know of it? They didn't know the fullness of it. They didn't know the confidence that we know. They didn't know the redemptive blessings and realities that we know. So they were saved by looking forward. We are saved by looking back, looking back as to what God himself has already done. Amen? That's profound. It's as if he's saying, look, do you understand that the grace of God was faithful to these Old Testament believers by working in their heart as they looked towards Messiah? He worked. They were justified no different than we were. But we, friends, are on the other side of the cross we now have experienced what they had not fully experienced. We were converted into the new covenant. We believed and were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We received the promises and we saw the realities of what Ephesians 1.3 says, that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. It's as if he's saying, I want to read you a quote that Calvin says more in paragraphs than I say in like three hours. Listen to this. This is an argument from the less to the greater. For if they, 
on whom the light of grace had not as yet so brightly shone, displayed so great a constancy in enduring evils, what ought the full brightness of the gospel to produce in us? A small spark of light led them to heaven when the sun of righteousness shines over us with what pretense can we excuse ourselves if we still cleave to the earth? This is the real meaning of the apostle. It's as if we can look at this and say, wow, look at the promises that we've received. Look at the wonder of what God has revealed. It's as if he is reminding them in a gentle yet forceful, encouraging way to remind them yet again, in Christ Jesus, you have everything you need to endure. In Christ Jesus, you can go through the suffering. In Christ Jesus, you can keep going. Look back, be encouraged what God has done in your family album. Look at what God's done in the saints of old, but never forget the blessing of what you've experienced now birthed into the new covenant, recognizing with eyes through the spirit of the promises that God has brought you in Christ. I tell you, it's as if at this point, and this is where we move to the takeaways, and there's a lot of takeaways, a lot of takeaways. One of them that hit me was, number one, remember your blessings. Remember your blessings. There's nothing more tragic than when a believer is either ignorant of their blessings or they lose sight of their blessings. What do you need? What do we need to do? How are we gonna gain strength in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering? We need to run to the word because in the word, we have our memorials. You see, the memorials that the people had in the Old Testament were precious. They were significant. They were monuments of God's faithfulness to them. But you know one memorial that they didn't have that we have? The cross of Jesus Christ. They were looking towards it. Why? Because by grace through faith, they were looking to Messiah, believing in the promise of what the Old Testament was looking towards. But friend, we have more memorials than they even had. Why? Because they were longing to look into what God has now revealed to us. Run to the word. Run to the word. You know, don't neglect church. Why? What is the purpose of church? Is it, it's not to pack the pew Sunday so the church can celebrate that it has 47 more people than they've had in their church's history. That's not what it's about. You run to church, why? Because it's through the community of God that we're reminded of what is true. It's through the community of the people of God that we're given strength by the Holy Spirit to endure suffering. It's through the people of God that we are exhorted, that we have accountability, that we can have church discipline. Why? Because we need each other because we're not just any group of people. We are the called out community of God. And we need one another if we're gonna live and we're gonna grow. I wanna encourage you. So many of you are, are actively involved in the church. Keep doing it. Keep being involved with the people of God. 
by the grace of God, keep running after him. You know, I was thinking about this. Are you around examples of faith in your life outside of your faith community? Be careful. Are there people in your life, the people you spend the most time with, are they examples of faith? Are they examples of people that are persuaded by the word of God? Think about it. Because I'll tell you, it's an amazing correlation in our lives when we associate primarily with people who are not persuaded by the things of God. Many of these people are professing Christians. They're people that are good people. They go to a church in the community. That's not what I'm asking though. Are they people of faith? Are they people that walk with God? Are they people that are trusting in the promises of God? Because I'm telling you, it has a dramatic influence. It's like you get around a person that has grown in the ways of God. It's not a strange conversation for them to say, I can't tell you about the people that have poured into me. I can't tell you about the people that have mentored me, the people that have ministered to me, the people that have spurred me on to righteousness. It could be this morning that some of the issues that you could be having in your faith journey that are struggles or that you're not in the word of God, being able to meditate on the promises and the blessings he's given is that you maybe have forsaken the church and the people of God. And it could be that rather than being around faithful believers who emulate and model what faith is, the people you spend the most time with are people that simply model unbelief. But another thing this morning, remember the family album in times of suffering. Don't just remember the family triumphs. When you're going through a period of suffering, take comfort that you are not alone. Not only is the Lord faithful to minister to you where you are, but as you look to the people of God, their story involves suffering. And those that have gone before you have been where you are before. The third one, not only remember your blessings, not only remember the family album in times of suffering, but the third reminder, remember Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I was thinking about this and I want you to be encouraged. When you look at Ephesians, you realize that Paul equates strengthening with power through his spirit in your inner being. He equates that with Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. I thought how fitting. It's the same idea of Hebrews 11. These people experience strength in the midst of weakness. It's like the life of the Christian, the normal walk of the believer is trusting in the promises of God. It's being persuaded by the truth of God. This morning, where are you not walking by faith? Can you identify a place? Can you identify, I don't know about you, but a lot of times for me, I don't have to look any further than my biggest struggle that I'm going through. And often, if I'm not walking by faith in regards to that struggle, I'm not walking by faith anywhere. It's gonna be in proportion to the greatest reality and the greatest struggle that you're facing. And God brings that in your life and says, invites you, hey, trust me, walk with me, believe on my word, believe in my promises. But then finally this morning, look to the Savior. 
look to the Savior. You may be with us today, and 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 you're 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 taking this in, but you've never it's never been a personal thing for you. I want to remind you of the of the, really the nature of what we're looking at Hebrews nine, and just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You're going to face your Maker. You're going to face the Creator. And your only hope, your only hope is to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus is that by looking to the blessed Redeemer, he secures our life by his blood and by his grace as we trust and depend on what he's done for us at the cross. We don't have to be afraid. We can rest in him. We can rest in his work. We can rest in what he's accomplished for us. So we see the people, the triumphs, the sufferings, the encouragement, the takeaways. As we close, uh, let's pray that we could connect the dots to where we live right now. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I don't know why we are on this side of the new covenant and these precious people that trusted in you by looking forward to your promises. I don't know why you arranged for them to be there, but Lord, I know it's all part of your perfect plan. But Lord, I know from what we read in Hebrews 11, 39 and 40, this is to motivate us that we can trust you no matter what, Lord. We can look at your faithfulness as to how you've worked according to your plan. And Lord, that can give us strength to understand that you will be faithful to do what you said you would do in the future. And Lord, I pray right now that you would help us to see what this walk of faith looks like in our life. Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us to connect the dots in a way that glorifies you to understand where our life is is of faith and where our life is of unbelief. But Lord, I thank you that you've given us everything that we need in Christ Jesus, that he is our great high priest, that he is not only sinless, but he sympathizes with us in our weakness. And Lord, everything we need through Christ, you give us as a gift of your overwhelming, abounding grace. So Lord, I pray that even as we look at this call, as we look at this call to endure, as we look at this call to walk practically being persuaded by your word in the day-to-day, I pray, Lord, that we look to Jesus, recognizing it's only through our great high priest that we can follow obediently. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me.